This is the MoneyWeb Be a Better Investor podcast. Picking the brains of professional investors on their investment strategies, successes, and mistakes. Your host, Rake Fanika. Welcome to this week's edition of the Be a Better Investor podcast. It's the podcast where I speak to professional investors about their investment journeys and why they pursued a career in managing other people's money. We also discuss how they approach the management of their own money as well as their best and worst investments ever. And the idea is to find those golden nuggets from their perspectives and experiences to assist amateur retail investors to become better investors. My guest today is Drikus Kombrink. He's the founder and CEO of Capicraft Investment Partners, he founded this boutique asset management firm in 2014. Drikus, thank you so much for joining me. Capicraft has been around for eight years. Uh, there are many boutique asset managers out there. What makes Capicraft different? Well, uh, Rake, the first thing I would say is the size. We're so smaller than the basic boutiques out there. And um, what makes it different uh, other than size it's a long-term orientation, firstly. We are big-picture thinkers, and we try to integrate the macro picture, the big picture, with understanding of micro-drivers within industries, within sectors. There's always microeconomics at play, which you, you might find much bigger returns uh, or more, more potential than just looking at the macro, which sometimes you know can be quite elusive. And then we also do idiosyncratic uh, opportunities, which means stock-specific stuff, company-specific stuff. So we try to integrate that approach into a well-constructed portfolio. And, um, and what makes us also different to other boutiques is we still see private clients and we do segregated mandates for private clients. Let's talk about Drikus, the investor. Just give us a bit of background. Where did you grow up and when did you decide you wanted a career in the investment world? Well, I was originally in my matric already at place in uh, Potsdam University. I don't know what it's called today, but... The Northwest University. The Northwest University, yeah. And uh, I, I was um, going to study... Uh, engineering, mechanical engineering. And then I had a wonderful accounting teacher. And the teacher, um, I remember, remember in matric, the one class we were doing companies, doing the accounting of companies. And it suddenly struck me uh, that I can own a share of the profits of a successful company that somebody else has built. And this really intrigued me and started reading up about it and exploring it and having conversations with my teacher and, and other other professionals. And um, I changed. Um, you know, I enrolled for investment management at, at the University of Pretoria, after which I did charter financial analyst examinations. Uh, normally, it's for the very smart guy that takes about three years, took me five years. Uh, just because I, you know, I really wanted to know the body mm. <laughs> of knowledge. But yeah, um, I think that was also an important qualification to have if you're going to manage investments directly. When did you buy your very first share and what was it? Actually, very first share was when I was still studying. I think it was one of the platinum um, companies in my second or third year in, while studying. And I lost money. After being up at first, I just remember in the early 2000s, the platinum miners who were at one stage were doing quite well. 
some of it was because of the weaker rand. And when the rand started strengthening, I think that's why I lost money. I only understood it, you know, <laughs> many years afterwards. But um, yeah, I think that was a good lesson in uh, the risk involved in the marketplace. I think that is an invaluable experience uh, because uh, when you buy your first share, you only expect profits and, and quick profits. And when it goes down, you start to think differently about investments. Did your investment approach change over the years? Uh, absolutely. I was in a, in, a, in a very good position with good mentors for eight years at PSG Wealth in the larger office. At the end of the, my tenure, I was overseeing about eight and a half billion rands of equity assets. And um, when I left PSG after a short stint in private equity, which didn't work out for me, um, I started my own firm, Capicraft, which I run to this day. And at first, I started running concentrated equity portfolios and um, trying typically to do the Warren Buffett, Benjamin Graham style of investments, a real value investor. Uh, uh, you know, The problem is, uh, and luckily we had a solid offshore allocation and that worked out for us, but the problem is that the environment was really turning sour locally. In 2015, when we started out, when we onboarded the first clients, you know, the, the environment locally was really bad and value investments on our, our you know, local exchange on the JSE uh, performed very poorly for the next few years in basically a stagnant economy. So uh, a lot of lessons there uh, and also actually adapt to my clients needs. So we changed from this very concentrated value oriented equity portfolios to what we now call multi-asset and multi-style portfolio management, where portfolio construction and risk management, etc., is is tailored to the client's needs. You refer to a value strategy where you only invest in shares you believe are cheap and could perform well in future as profits rise. But there's another strategy that is quite popular, and that is a so-called growth strategy or a momentum investment strategy where you actually buy shares that are going up. One example would be you only buy shares, which, for example, traded for a while below its 200-day moving average. And the moment it crosses that line where it starts to trade above its 200-day moving average, you pile in. What do you think of that strategy? Yeah, Rick, what we've done is, uh, from a philosophical perspective, We've realized that, you know, growth versus value or momentum versus value uh, or contrarianism or whatever you might call it is a few ways that the market pigeonholes these investment strategies. We think that presents a false dichotomy between the different investment styles um, and the pigeonholing leads to uh, unnecessary ways of viewing investment opportunities. So what we've adopted is what we call the capital cycle pioneered by a, a big management firm offshore called Marathon Capital, or Marathon Asset Management, rather. And um, the capital cycle's basic premise is that over time, you know, well-earning uh, firms, earnings uh, or companies or sectors that produces returns above the weighted average cost of capital will attract competition. Sometimes it takes a bit longer, uh, depends on the industry, depends on the regu regulatory environment, depends on the the structure of the industry, is it concentrated, is it dispersed, etc. 
But over time, there's a capital cycle. It attracts capital, and not only at the company or sector level, you know, the physical machinery and equipment and personnel, etc., that gets investment within the sector and companies, but also on an uh, instrument level uh, in the marketplace. You know, uh, there's a narrative that builds, uh, like which has built with technology shares over the last few years. And that capital cycle also has a down leg. And the capital cycle is typically uh, a decade or, or longer. And um, so it, I stick with a long-term view. And we try to avoid timing the business cycle, which is very macro-dependent. And uh, we think we're just quite elusive. You obviously manage your own money. I'm sure you are saving for your retirement like everybody else. Tell us about your personal approach towards investments maybe relative to your job to manage other people's retirement money most of it is almost 100 percent overlap to somebody that's in a similar position to my own somebody that's in the midlife that's in a capital building phase still uh, a few decades hopefully away from retirement etc you're still building capital so my personal asset allocation will typically look the same as as the client that walks in the door with the same profile. But I do have a small amount of money that I put more risk into, more concentrated. Sometimes I'll use, use a little bit of leverage, but it's money that I'm fine going without for a long while. So let's call it a speculative portfolio or concentrated portfolio, but I do have some money on the side, which is managed more aggressively. I think many retail investors do not follow such a segmented approach where you have one portion of your portfolio invested in good long-term growth assets and then also have a little speculative portfolio on the side. How much of that portfolio is speculative and and how much do you actually invest in long-term growth assets? Well, there's a big overlap. The only thing is that the more aggressive portfolio will be less risk-managed. It will be in some of your best ideas, and sometimes that doesn't even work out. Sometimes some of your best ideas are actually, over the short term, some of your worst performers. So not all clients can stomach that. That is the one reality that I've learned is the best investment strategy is the one that you can stick to. So if you can't stick to a a great investment strategy, that's not going to work for you. Uh, Even even if it's going to produce the best five-year track record in the planet, if the volatility is going to be too much for your stomach, you're going to lose out on that uh, amazing performance. So most of it's designed to keep clients invested. You do have to manage some risk. And um, if the client isn't, is, is willing to take the extra volatility or short-term disappointment, then obviously we can set up an account for him that likewise invest in a more concentrated, more aggressive portfolio. What do you think is a good hit-miss ratio? Uh, The number of shares in your portfolio that uh, grows in value and some of those uh, who actually lose value? Well, 60%, I think, is the number Buffett gave. And I do think if you can get 6 out of 10 that really perform, that's great. But it doesn't even need to be that much. If I can get 3 or 4 out of each 10 that really does well and I size them appropriately, meaning that they are the biggest share of the portfolio and I'm along for the ride, meaning that I'm in them earning most of the return that that they're able to give me. And with the other six or seven that doesn't work out, 
I realize early that I'm wrong or I've at least positioned them as a smaller size in the portfolio. And um, that's how you manage risk at the end of the day. Um, but you do not need a very high heat ratio to be successful. I don't know if it is a trend, but I've spoken to many amateur retail investors. And one thing that I've realized was that many of these investors, if they need to sell shares, then they would sell their best performing shares. They would take the profits rather than to sell, for example, a share that has performed poorly within their portfolio. Would that also be the way you think of shares when you need to, to sell a share, maybe, for example, to, to get access to some money? No, it depends, Ray. So what I do is I regard the portfolio as starting afresh. What would I invest in if you gave me a fresh million rand today? How would I allocate that portfolio? You know, Forget about what you already invested in. And if that share that you're evaluating isn't included, in a fresh million rand portfolio, get rid of it. How long do you typically hold on to a poor performer in your portfolio? It was a stage where I was a, a real die-art with a losing position. These days, it's, it's much shorter. Uh, once again, it's case-dependent. Sometimes the reason for the share declining is, is a macro event, and you just need to see through this, this macro period or there's, there's a positioning in the market, repositioning in the market, happening at the moment and you just need to see that through sometimes something fundamentally has changed or you realize that your initial assessment of the company was wrong and then you need to get out um the, the pro- obvious problem is what we call uh, thesis drift where you buy a company or an instrument for a certain reason and that reason doesn't play out the share price drops say 20 percent and now I say, well, it's cheaper now, bad news is price, and there's other reasons to own it, here it is. And each time it drops, there's some other different reason that you come up with for owning the stock. The best is just to write down your original reason, your original thesis, and if that changes, just sell the stock. Ego must play a big part in such decisions, especially if you're not very experienced. Uh, what is your perception on having done a lot of research on a share, you believe it offers value, you buy mm. it and it goes down? Uh, does it's, ego it's, play it's a role? <laughs> it's ego and it's, it's almost heartbreaking. You can fall in love with, with companies or sectors. That's the problem. And I do think at the moment a lot of market participants, investors are in love with a lot of tech shares. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, a lot of hearts will break. That is the unfortunate reality. This is not a, a marriage. You're not married to any share. You can push a few buttons and exit the position. You want to decide if you want to fall in love or um, if it's about your ego. Do you want to keep your ego, you know, or do you want to make money? This is essentially about making money, not about your ego, not about loving the narrative, be careful about narratives and, and be aware of your own ego. That's not always easy to do because many people's investment strategy is hedged on hope, um, which, of course, is, uh, I think, a lot worse than fear and greed. But anyway, Absolutely. now for the big question. What is your best investment ever, the one you are the most proud of? The one that I'm the most proud of that made me personally the most money was the investments in Bright. Just when Bright um, bought over 
I can't remember exactly what the corporate action was, but I realized that rate was sitting with Pepco inside. That Pepco was, if you on a look through basis, you were actually paying about a five or a six price earnings ratio at the stage for Pepco if you subtract the other companies. And that was relative to Mr. Price at that time in the, in the early 2010s was trading, I think, at a at a deep in the 20s price earnings ratio. So I just I knew there was a lot of value there. Pepco was also also growing at that time. Its earnings at strong double digits, just like Mr. Price did that back then. And uh, I think I made uh, a good four five hundred percent over the next two years, and I had a lot of money personally in it. So from a personal point of view, that's where I made a lot of money. I didn't manage. Uh, any fund at that stage within the funds where we've made a lot of money uh, since we've just launched the fund there's a few places actually but the most pronounced one is a small industrial company in the u.s uh, below the radar it's called wesco international wesco we bought just before the COVID epidemic at about 50 dollars it fell to about 15 dollars we picked up more around 20 and we sold out at about $160 two years, two and a half years later. So you know, just over a short time period, we had about a 400% return on, on that single stock. And what was the biggest dog you've ever bought? Oh, there are, there are so many. <laughs> the trick, once again, is not to hold on to them. It's to, to move along. But um, the one dog that actually turned out great for us later because we had our position sizing great was a small or micro cap locally listed. It was called Etion. So Etion, which at one stage was called Ansys, um, I followed for a few years. And Etion, I think we bought at, it fell to about 80 cents. And at the bottom of COVID, it fell below 20 cents. Um, so it's, it's a good, I think, 60% loss that we took on. And we were just considering just selling it, you know, just getting rid of it and moving away was very liquid. But then we started noticing that there was, you know, corporate changes within the company that were starting to sell some of the assets that were maybe latent, not seen by the market. And we could see there's a lot of value unlock. So we added to the position at the lows, recovering uh, at least what we think we've lost. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, maybe I should just keep with the, the dog that we that we made some money off from in the end. What do you think is the biggest mistake retail or amateur retail investors typically make? Yeah, one that's maybe apt for the times is um, buying an average business at high multiples after a lot of tailwinds, after a lot of very favorable business conditions. I think in the US, for one, there's been a lot of favorable business conditions over the last few years and a lot of the shares that have benefited from those conditions, maybe average businesses, we, we won't know until after the fact really, but I think there's a lot of average businesses that are trading like very, very high quality companies and um, I think that's the biggest mistake to make is catching onto that narrative that these are great companies, but actually it was just all along favorable business conditions. Drikas, thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your insights. Hey, thanks, Ray. Appreciate it. It was Drikas Kombrink. He's the founder and CEO of Capicraft Investment Partners. Show me the money. That was the Money Web. Be a better investor podcast with Ray Funicap. Thanks for listening.
Catch up and listen to all the MoneyWeb podcasts on moneyweb.co.za or the app. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.